Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast designed to help more people get into God's Word and get more out of the Word. I'm Ben Blakey. It's Thursday, September 23rd, 2021. I am currently listening to an audiobook that describes somebody's experience climbing Mount Everest. And let me just say, after reading this book, climbing Mount Everest is not going on my bucket list anytime soon. It sounds excruciating. It does not sound enjoyable at all. Even this particular individual describes his experience of reaching the summit, reaching literally the highest point on planet Earth. And when he got there, there was no uh, joy. There, there was no uh, even relief. It was still just, I need to survive. And there was such a weariness in that moment that he couldn't even enjoy what he did. And even the so-called base camp for a Mount Everest climb is at 17, 000, already over 17,000 feet, uh, which is higher than any point we have here, at least in the continental United States. Uh, th- this is very high and very hard, hard climbing, uh, low uh, oxygen with high altitudes, and even moments where as you get tired, as the trip goes on, if you stop There's a real danger that you might not ever get going again. Now, the the Christian life throughout Scripture is talked about as a test of endurance. And uh, we know from Scripture that there is much more joy when we reach uh, kind of the summit. When we reach heaven, we will experience joy. There is joy to be had in the Christian life, but we do know that there is a lot of endurance and there there is hardship that will be born in the Christian life. How do we keep going? And even I think we're going to see some warnings today that if if we stop, uh, there's a very real danger uh, that we might never get going again. And we're going to touch on some of these things as we look now at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. First, we need to remind ourselves that we want to climb. We want to go up, or as uh, C.S. Lewis put it, further up and further in, right? We want to grow in the Christian life. And we see that from the beginning. That should be our goal and our passion. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So he's saying, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. What what does that mean? Well, I don't think it means, and I think this is very clear when we consider the New Testament as a whole, it certainly does not mean we forsake the gospel, uh, that, that we somehow forget the basics of the gospel message. But what I think it is saying is that we don't stop there. We build on that, right? The goal of somebody on an Everest expedition is not to reach base camp. The goal is to reach the summit. And the idea is not, well, I'm just going to hang around base camp for a few weeks and have a good time. No, I want to go up. I want to go up 
the mountain. And that's the goal of the Christian life. It's not just, all right, cool. I'm in. I understand the gospel. It's, well, now I want to grow. I want to become more like Christ. And even in the last verse of chapter 5, it talks about solid food is for the mature, who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So it's not just about, all right, cool, I got my ticket to heaven. There's a very real extent to which we want to say, well, now I want to actually learn more about what is the difference between good and evil and how can I live that out in my life? Do you have that desire? As a Christian, do you have that desire to grow, uh, to press on, to become more like Christ? That is repeatedly what the Bible calls mature Christianity, uh, someone that wants to continue to grow. And we do see a very real danger for those that, that, that stop. It says in verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. So there is a very real warning about falling away that Christians need to heed. That there is a warning. There are going to be people that take some steps seemingly in the Christian life and hang around the Christian life and, and, and taste, right? They taste the goodness of the word of God. But it seems like that's all it is. It's just a taste. There's never really a full embrace of these things. So they've dabbled their toes in the water. That They've climbed the mountain a little bit, but once they stop, they're not going to keep going. Now, this can be a difficult passage to apply, and I think we should be cautioned against applying it uh, sometimes towards somebody else. I don't think the point of this passage is for us to look out at other people and say, well, I guess it's too late for them now. No, it's that's really hard for us to know. I think that information's a bit above our pay grade, but we need to watch out for ourselves. That is, I think, the point of this passage. But he, he gets on to some more encouraging things that he's saying, hey, you guys who I'm talking to, I'm confident of better things. I, I'm confident that you are going to endure. And I hope you're encouraged by these last three verses in our reading today, starting in verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is what I want to encourage you, listeners uh, of Revival from the Bible, with today. Is your heart full of an assurance? And not just an assurance, I would say, of your salvation, but an assurance of the promises of God, an assurance of the truths of the gospel. Are you settled and sure of those things? And then what you're going to need to endure is faith and patience. Are we going to walk by faith and not by sight? And and when life gets hard, are we going to bear up under it and keep going because we trust our guide? And that's the best thing. When we think about this mountain of the Christian life that we're climbing, we have the best guide. He's never failed. Uh, We want to stick close to him with faith and with patience and trust his leadership. And I hope that encourages you 
today. Now, let's move on to another interesting passage today, Psalm 109. Uh, And we're going to look at the first 10 verses of Psalm 109, and we get into uh, what is referred to as an imprecatory prayer. And it makes us scratch our heads a little bit, and rightfully so. I mean, consider, uh, starting in verse 6, appoint a wicked man against him. He's talking about people that have lied about him, people that have accused him and treated him with evil. And so in response to that, he prays, appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayers be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. And so it's like, wow, am I, am I really allowed to, to, to pray that? And how does that mesh with Jesus's command to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? And you might say, well, David's praying for him, all right. I don't think that's what Jesus meant. Uh, so how do we reconcile these things? And that can be difficult. Some have talked about how because David was the king, he, he's really speaking more of national sins as opposed to more of a personal vendetta. There may be something to that, that we're not the king of uh, God's people. Um, and so we should maybe think differently about some things. I, I do think we need to lean into some of those New Testament passages about praying for those who persecute us, uh, re- not returning evil for evil. But even to this credit, and there may be times where some of these things do fill your, your minds, but notice David is taking them to God in prayer. We do not get the sense that David is seeking to act out vengeance on his own. And I think that does fit with some of the things we see in the New Testament saying, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And so when we really feel that there has been injustice and wrong done against us, we need to take that to God. And even on some level, I think that's what we are seeing David do, not seeking vengeance for himself, but really bringing it up to the Lord. And I think though, we should be careful that these prayers for us aren't at least unmixed with praying genuinely for those who persecute us, um, following the example of Christ on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know uh, what they do. Let's move on now to our next Old Testament passage, Isaiah 21 through 24. And here we're going to see, again, some of the nations around Israel with Babylon and then Tyre and Sidon. That would be kind of modern day uh, Lebanon, primarily uh, some of those uh, cities there and and smaller kingdoms, but we also see a word against Jerusalem. And in the middle of verse eight, it says, in that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. Uh, You made the reservoir between the two walls for water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Now, it's very interesting. You can go to Jerusalem today and see a part of the wall where it looks like it was literally built over houses, Uh, perhaps a direct connection to this passage. But I found it very interesting where it says, you know, you did all this stuff And I don't think it's necessarily condemning them for the stuff that they did, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who promised it long ago. And it couldn't 
it couldn't, I couldn't help but think of America reading this and just thinking of the last year and a half and even the pandemic and all the things that have been done to try to stop this or to get back to normal. And not all of those things necessarily may have been evil things, but how much of that is going on without people looking to him who did it? To really looking to God. Are we surrounded by a nation that we want, just want to do things to fix the problem, but we're never going to acknowledge the real problem, the problem of our sin? And this passage stirred me up to pray for the nation of America, that even as we continue to go through trials, what we would see more than anything is people waking up to look to God and, and to repent of their sin and put their faith in Christ. That is our nation's greatest need, and I hope you will pray with me to that end today. Finally, we look at Luke 21, again, another passage focusing on eschatology. And one one statement that gets a lot of attention are two statements, and one is maybe a little debated, and the second we should all rejoice in. But the first one in verse 32 says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Now, what does that mean? Some who hold to kind of a different eschatological understanding than, than I would hold, would say, see, look, look right here. Jesus is saying to the people he's talking to, this generation will not pass away until this has taken place. And so they would see lots of the things even in Revelation and the prophecy of the New Testament fulfilled around 70 AD with the destruction of uh, Jerusalem. And I think there are some God-fearing people, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing uh, people that, that would hold to that position, but I don't think that's the best way to understand that verse. I think he's talking about, hey, look for these things, and when these things happen, uh, this generation, the generation that sees these things will not pass away until all has taken place. And while that may be debated, let, let us at least all rejoice in verse 33, where it says, heaven and earth will not pass away, but my or sorry, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Even as we consider our own need for endurance, as we continue to climb in the Christian life, let us remember that the words of our guide will never pass away. And may we be those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Thanks for digging into God's Word with me today on Revival from the Bible. For more resources, check out RevivalFromTheBible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to compassbible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.